Thanks again, everyone, for being here at the end of spring break. I know it would be probably an easy Sunday to, to take off when you, I was just talking to another parent, talking about how you feel like you need a break after the break. So uh, thank you for not taking it tonight and for being here. Uh, and thank you, Colby, for uh, preaching last week. Um, I pr- appreciate you filling in. He always does a great job, and it is, it's just, it's nice to know that, uh, Things are in good hands when uh, you're away for a week. And I did get to go to North Carolina, see some family, visit with dad who's getting progressively better, which is good. And so I appreciate y'all giving me the time to do that. Um, All right, tonight we're in Luke uh, 13, 1 through 9. You already heard the passage, um, and it is, um, it's a difficult one. I'm not going to lie. I've got a little bit of uh, tension about this sermon in a way that I haven't had in a while. Um, Maybe because it's pure heresy. I hope not. Um, but it gets at some ideas that are kind of heavy. And, um, and so I hope that you will kind of stick with me through it. Uh, show me some grace if I get it completely wrong. Uh, feel free to correct me in, uh, later on uh, if you're nice about it. And, um, and let's kind of work through uh, what, what's going on in this passage. Because it is, it, is it is a tough passage to get through, I think. Uh, and I will certainly not do it justice, but we will try to get through it here. Again, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Uh, it says this, At that time there were some present who told him, that's Jesus, told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That means the Roman, uh, the Roman in charge had killed uh, these Jews actually from Jesus' hometown while they were practicing their religion. So it was awful thing on every level, right? Uh, religiously, politically, uh, humanely, everything. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Are those 18 who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell on them Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting soil? He replied, sir... Let it alone for one more year until I dig around it, put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. That's just, that's just a, it's a fun set of verses, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of repentance and perishing and cut it down and manure. It's got manure in there. That's fun. But I think this gets at what may be the most disturbing and maybe disruptive part of the last couple years. And it's, I think, what Jesus is addressing here. And what, to me, was one of the most disruptive parts and disorienting parts the last few years is how arbitrary it all felt. Here's this little virus that jumps around and lands in whatever body it can, whenever it can. And you never know when your number's getting called, right? Maybe tomorrow, maybe a year from now. It kind of starts to feel like we're all going to get it at some point. And we start to learn about who's at more, a little more at risk, and who's not at risk. But even all these kind of things that we learned, we all know stories of people who got what was the world's worst lottery draw. It just landed on them. Their little white ball got drawn, 
And there's nothing they can do about it. And that is so disturbing and so disorienting for us that we produced anything we could to try to make sense of it, right? There's millions of hours of video, mostly from people who aren't actual scientists, writings for days on the internet, uh, posts and reposts and shares and reshares to try to explain it or explain it all away, trying to master it or make sense of what feels otherwise arbitrary or pure bad luck. Maybe my ball gets picked this week, maybe not. And all that randomness feels chaotic and it feels scary. At least it did to me. And I believe that kind of thing makes us humans panic, right? And even if you made it through the last two years relatively unaffected, which some of us did, I bet you experienced at least a little bit of that scariness, of that fear, of that sense of chaos. Now, of course, the truth is that the pandemic only magnified what has always been true, right? The pandemic was real. It scarred some families forever. I'm not downplaying that at all. But it really just highlighted what was already true about the world. The world already had a sense of underlying and arbitrary danger, right? We were just able to avoid it a little better and pretend like it didn't exist before the pandemic. But it's always been there. And we've always tried to find an explanation for it because it is hard to live with. And during Christ's time, they struggled with the same things. In fact, maybe to a greater degree, right? Given the precarious nature of their world, they were not as able to hide from it as we have traditionally been able to do. They didn't have the kind of science or medical advances we had had. They lived under a powerful and violent empire that made their lives in particular very scary and very unpredictable. They could just be going to worship one day and end up killed. So they were left to try and make sense of what felt like random, senseless tragedy, just as we experienced to maybe a greater degree in the last couple years. Now, it was accepted religious tradition that time that those kind of bad things, those kind of tragedies were not just random, but they happened for a reason. If someone was sick, if someone was impoverished, if someone was killed, or something bad happened to them, there must have been a reason. There must have been a debt that the cosmos was collecting, right? God was calling in whatever bad thing they have done, maybe known or unknown. Someone did something wrong, and they were getting taken from them what was owed to God. They got what they deserved. And that made sense of a scary world. It made sense out of a disordered and frightening and arbitrary sense of things, right? Now at least there's a reason. And it works. Unless, of course, your name gets drawn. Then the sense, then there doesn't make as much sense as you'd like it to. But you see this tradition uh, coming at play even later with the disciples uh, in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, it says this, as, as they went along, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You hear how loaded that question is? His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That is a loaded question. The question is, isn't, did someone sin? It's who sinned, him or his parents? It's just assumed that someone had to have done something wrong for this to have happened to this man. Right? It's a bad question. It's a bad framing. It's a loaded question. It'd be like me saying, okay, guys, be honest. 
Am I a great preacher or the best preacher? That's totally what I was fishing for. Thank you. It's a loaded question, right? There's obviously, I'm obviously trying to uh, affirm something I've already carried into the question if I ask that that way. And here the question is about the Galileans who were martyred by Rome during their religious practice. Now, there may have been some mixed motivations for this even coming up, right? Uh, maybe they're trying to take Jesus' temperature on where he is in regards to Rome. Is he a zealot? Does he believe in taking up arms? Is he ready to fight? What's going on here, right? So they bring up the situation with the Galileans. This is his hometown. There's a good chance Jesus knew these people. Galilee was not that big. And Galilee was also known as being a hotbed for zealots. It, it produced people, lots of people in history, who were fired up and ready to take Rome on. So maybe they were just trying to test his temperature on that. But whether the question was sincere or not, the underlying assumption is still the same as we see in John 9 with his disciples. What did they do wrong? Why did they deserve that? Right? For something this bad to occur, there has to be a reason. They must have deserved it. There has to be a reason. To which Jesus gives an uncharacteristically direct answer. Jesus is known for answering questions with opaque stories. But Jesus has a very direct answer here. And his answer is, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Jesus then brings up another story about the Tower of Siloam that fell on people. And you may want to know more about that, and I'd love to give you some context, but we have no history of what that actually was, what happened there, right? In fact, neither of these stories, is there any external history to kind of get more details about it? Doesn't mean it didn't happen, we just don't know about it. But apparently there was a tower in Jerusalem that randomly fell down and killed a bunch of people. So it wasn't even an act of, you know, revolt against the government or any of those kind of things. It would be what we would call an act of God. This random tower falling and killing people. And Jesus says not even what we call acts of God are actually acts of God. They're not an indication of divine judgment or unique guilt on the victim's part. In fact, Jesus indicates it could just as easily have been you. They're no different than you are. And in fact, of course, one day it will be you, just like it will be me. Who knows when, who knows how, or in what way, but the day comes for us all. We will all come face to face with the end of ourselves. Eventually my name will get drawn in that lottery too. Which is why I'm trying to settle that great or best thing for my epitaph. But I appreciate your votes and we'll, we'll tally them up later. We need to know the answer. We need to know the reason. It feels too scary to not have one, right? And we're still trying to answer that mystery today. To answer it in some way that makes us feel a little safer, a little more distant from that lottery. Now... For the most part today, it's not usually about immorality or divine retribution anymore. I mean, we've still got our occasional wacko televangelist that blames Hurricane Katrina on God's judgment on gay people in, in New Orleans, although the French Quarter remained mostly untouched, which you would think God would have better aim than that. But So occasionally, people are still making that argument, but that's not usually the way we go about it. It's not how I go about it. But every time I hear about something tragic, every time I hear about someone's loss, I find myself asking questions that I don't even really know why I'm asking them. 
I don't make that argument about, well, were they a really bad sinner? But I still look for something that somehow exempts me. Oh, she, she got cancer. Was she a smoker? Family history? Work near asbestos, right? Did, did she eat carb, complex carbs? I read something on the internet that said that may be it. Like, I'd look for some kind of reason. All ways of asking, what is different about them that this could happen to them and not me? It's a car accident. Someone drunk, were they driving recklessly? Were they on their phone? You know, you shouldn't be on your phone. Heart attack, oh, fried foods, no exercise. Too much exercise? Did they drink alkaline water or regular? We all, you do it too, don't you? We ask these questions. And it's some way of sussing out, I gotta find a reason. It's just kind of built into us. We all wanna locate a reason, an explanation and honestly, something that separates them from me, something that makes them different from me and me somehow exempt. But it seems that Jesus wants to have no part in explaining the mystery of answering the unanswerable when it comes to a tragedy. And I would argue that if Jesus has no interest in making that explanation, it's probably not our job either. If you look in the book of Job, and it's a long book, and it's not easy to get through, and there's a lot going on there, but part of what we see in that scene is that Job is basically, if you can imagine, the worst case scenario, everything that could possibly go wrong. It's, it's, a, it's your lottery ball getting picked 10 times in a row. And he had, Job has these friends that come when all this tragedy happens, when, when Job loses everything that a person can lose. And at first, they sit quietly and mourn with him. And that's what you should do. And they're doing great as friends until they start talking. And they talk for chapters. They got a lot to say. And they begin to try to explain what happens. And it turns out God's not really in favor of it. There is no controlling the deep mystery of it all. And I want to argue tonight that it is okay to acknowledge that we don't know the reason why. Or that there isn't even is a reason why for everything. Everything happens for a reason is perhaps the most accepted religious saying that sounds Christian, but I don't know that it actually is. This would make my pastor growing up very mad. But I don't, I, usually that's just a saying that is used to end a hard conversation by issuing some platitude that doesn't actually help or mean anything. Yet we all kind of want it. And I get it. But if I'm going to show my cards, to be honest, now I believe firmly in a God that is with me through anything. Even the deepest of valleys, I believe my God is with me. I believe that God feels whatever heartache and pain I feel. And I believe wholeheartedly that God can make beautiful and amazing things come from even the most tragic of circumstances. But I no longer feel compelled at all 
to say that everything happens for a reason or that God made it happen for some bigger purpose. That there's some explanation for the tragedies that make me feel insecure. I don't need there to be a reason anymore. I don't need to believe that God did it. I just need to know that God is with me in the midst of it. And I personally, this is a big transition for me, this is not how I was brought up. Again, if I haven't already been unofficially kicked out of my old church, I just was. But I have found a lot of freedom in getting rid of that need to explain. I remember having a very difficult conversation, just hard, sad conversation with a friend of mine about this very idea a few years back. Uh, she had a family member who struggled with an addiction and very tragically, accidentally overdosed and died way before their time. In her grief, she had sought some counsel from some pastors that she knew, and a couple of them told her, it's okay, everything happens for a reason. That God had planned this loss for some bigger purpose, in some mysterious way that she couldn't understand. And they were trying to provide comfort to her in that situation, but it was a devastating thing to tell her. And the implications really are awful <laughs> when you begin to think about it. And so we began to unpack that, and she began to ask me questions, and she was hurting a lot from the implications of that and feeling a lot of guilt about a lot of things, and we talked about it. And I started by apologizing to her for not having a really strong, certain answer for her because I didn't know the answer to it all. And eventually, as we were talking, I told her what I just confessed to you, that I, sometimes I think awful things happen for no good reason but that God is fully with us. God is experiencing the loss with us. God can bring something good from it. But I told her I didn't think God took her family member because of some mysterious cause or purpose beyond her understanding. And she said, you know, it sounds a whole lot like you're saying, she didn't say it exactly this way, it sounds a whole lot like you're saying crap happens. And I said, yeah. That's honestly part of my theology. Part of my theology is crap happens, but it's not the end of the story. And I felt terrible for not having a, maybe a better answer than that um, and appearing more faithful than that. But then I got a call another couple days later, and she said it makes a little more sense to me now and talked about the weight that had been lifted by just owning the crap happens theology. Again, I just get far more hope from a God that suffers with me than a God who causes everything to happen for some mysterious reason I don't know and can't know. And so I think Jesus nips this in the bud pretty clearly. That's not how it works, he says. But then his response to this whole line of questioning is not only to say, no, it doesn't work that way, he then moves the conversation towards repentance, which feels like a weird move. And I know repentance is a loaded word, right? A lot of us only think about repentance being yelled at us as some kind of threat. 
not the good news it's intended to be. But he moves the conversation towards repentance and then tells about a story about a tree with no fruit. And this is a strange response. Although it is worth noting that if there really was an explanation for everything, an easy answer, this would have been the perfect place to share it. Instead, it seems that Jesus tells everyone to stop trying to figure out the mystery they can't understand. Quit looking for this magical reason out there and instead tells them to worry about their own hearts, their own guilt, their own shame, their own life and its roots and its fruit. In other words, don't waste time on things you can't possibly know the answer to. Don't spend a minute trying to determine why things happen or don't happen to others and whether they deserve it or don't deserve it or any of those other questions. Don't try to separate yourself from those that suffer at all. You are no different. Worry about yourself. Concern yourself. Start with things that you can actually change. You are not God, and that is good news. So pay attention to that which you actually have authority over, your own life, your own heart, your own behavior, your own love or lack thereof for your brothers and sisters. That day is coming for all of us, so we need to deal with ourselves today. And this isn't a threat, I don't think. It's not because God is out to get the disobedient, throwing towers on the unrepentant. It's not about convincing you of a scary God who's going to get you if you don't do the right thing. It's quite the opposite. As I read this parable, Christ is the one arguing for the worst of even the most unfruitful trees. Christ is paying attention to and tending to the trees who are thought to be wasting space in the vineyard. Christ is the one offering to come alongside and work to help those trees become what they were made to be. Jesus is not in the stump grinding business. He's in the hope business, the redemption business. He is in the better things are coming, just wait business. Keep working at it. Give it some time. Give it some attention. Give it some love. Tend to it, and good things will happen. Don't worry yourself about those things you can't possibly explain. You are not God, but you are God's beloved. God is with you and God is for you. And with the help of that gracious gardener who attends to us, we can spend our lives on that which we can do something about. Our own hearts, our own minds, and our own lives, which are fleeting and of infinite importance to our Creator. There is a God, and the good news is it's not you, and you don't have to answer those questions. You don't have to know the reason why everything happens, if there is one at all. Tend to your own growth in love. And yes, crap happens, and crap will happen to you. But that is not the end of the story. In fact, according to the parable, sometimes that crap is the very stuff God uses in the soil to help us become who we're intended to be. There's always hope. Let's pray. God, we confess that we confess that we want uh, answers. 
that we will grasp at explanations and reasons that may not even exist. That, Lord, there's an insecurity that comes from not knowing uh, that we push against. And God, our prayer is that each person in this room might be unburdened. Unburdened by those unanswerable questions. God, may we not believe any of the easy answers to infinite questions. May we not waste our time and energy on that which we cannot possibly comprehend. May we not distance ourselves from those who are suffering so that we feel like we are different than them. But God, may we attend to our own hearts, our own souls, our own soil and roots so that with your gracious help we might become who we are called to be in this world. And we might grow the kind of kingdom you are seeking to grow. I thank you for the grace that looks past our fruitlessness and still believes that there's better things ahead. We love you and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.